You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 9. In the, uh, the first nine verses we studied a couple weeks ago, we, we saw what we, I think, all would agree would be the most famous conversion uh, in the New Testament, uh, but it's also probably one of the most unlikely. Um, highly improbable, I think, is what most people would have said if 2,000 years ago, you would have walked up to a man by the name of Saul, who was persecuting the church, wreaking havoc on the church. He was a Pharisee. He was accomplished as like the Pharisee of Pharisees. If you would have walked up to him and said, hey, there's a church up the street. It's, it's in La Habra. It's, it's a bunch of, you know, these, these people that are following Christ. They believe that he actually rose from the dead. And they're like standing up and singing a song that I love you with all of my heart. Saul, would you ever go to that church? And would you ever sing that song? Would you, would you believe that, that these people, what they believe, would you believe that? that? That Jesus, who you say was not the Messiah and did not raise from the dead, do you think you would ever convert? He would say, no way. If you went up to any of of Saul's contemporaries, if you went up to any of the 70 that made up the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, do you believe that Saul will convert and, and, and start to believe in Jesus and start attending Calvary Chapel La Habra? They'd say, no way. If you walked into Calvary Chapel La Habra 2,000 years ago, those Christians that were being persecuted, if we were being persecuted, if we were, if these empty seats here today represented those that were incarcerated or no longer were with us because they were put to death. And we said, well, here's the one that's putting all of our loved ones in jail. Here's the one who is, we put his picture up here. That's the dude. Do you believe that guy will ever be converted and sit in this room with us and sing, I love Jesus with all of my heart, with his hands raised? A good number of us would say, no way. But then we have God and his opinion. How many are really glad that God has an opinion, by the way? Because God says, way. There's a way. Oh, oh yeah, there's a way. And, and the way wouldn't even make sense because Saul goes to the high priest and he's like, I hear that down in San Diego, there is, actually he would be going up north from here if this was Jerusalem. So past Santa Barbara, 150 miles, wherever that lands you as the crow flies, there's this city called Damascus. It's a large city. There's, there's a large number of, of 
synagogues there, probably 50, maybe more. And I would like papers, I would like permission to go and, and find the Christians that are there, and I'd like to just do to them what I'm doing to Christians here in Jerusalem. Incarcerate them, beat them, murder them, wreak havoc on those churches. And the high priest would say, you have your papers. So papers in tow with his entourage, heading up north, he gets close to the city. It's midday. He's got his sights set on Damascus. And a bright light just shines from heaven. It's the way. It's God's way. And we noted that we could look at the conversion of Saul and just learn so much about how God, how God works. What happens when someone is converted? If you are here and you're not a Christian, if you're listening online and you're not a Christian, these are the kind of questions I would have. How, how does all this work? If I was sitting in this room right now this morning and I wasn't a Christian, I'd be like, wow, these people like just really, they're singing to him. They, how does all of this work? Where does that begin? They're obviously not like me. What made them who used to be like me like that? I would want to know. And here's a great, just several verses that let us know how that happens. This bright light shines down from heaven and Saul falls to the ground. He hears this loud voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against, a kick against the, the, the goads. And then he's, he's seen next, the next verse is trembling and astonished. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And we just made a few notes, and I just want to recap them because... Saul has been converted, and we're going to get into what happens next. And I think it's just important to understand what God has done and how Saul responded. But we talked about this divine contact. There's the initiation of God. Jesus revealing himself to Saul. Saul was overpowered by the brilliance and the, the radiance of Christ's glory. God initiates, but we must respond appropriately. And the, the proper response initially should be conviction. Before Paul was made the saint, he had to come to the realization that he was a sinner, that he had sinned against Christ. He needed to change his view about Christ. Question, who are you, Lord? Here, here we see a recognition of deity, which is interesting. He realized now that the Messiah, this was the Lord, the Messiah, reaching out to him. There was this change happening in his heart and in his mind as he opened his heart up to Christ as he was encountering Christ. And Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He's very clear in how he reveals himself. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. He affirms his identity to Saul, and then he points Saul to the error of his ways. He brings up the difficulty 
of Saul's life. For indeed, as the Proverbs say, the way of the transgressor is hard. A life of rejecting Jesus is hard. And Jesus wants Saul to agree with him on that, to understand that, and, and to see that and to agree with him on that in order that he would turn from that. And that's what repentance is. He's trying to bring him to a place of repenting. You're heading the wrong way. You're wrong about me. Now turn 180 degrees. Hit the right way. And obviously this worked. He's trembling in verse 6. That's evidence of genuine conviction. He is also astonished. He's now amazed at the reality of who Jesus is. He was wrong about Jesus, just discounted Jesus. He was never astonished about Jesus until he came to the right conviction of who Jesus is. Now he's astonished. And then, Lord, what do you want me to do? That, that's evidence of conversion. So we see the divine contact. We see the conviction. We see the conversion and then we talked about there would be this, this consecration where Saul would then be set apart for the Lord, where Jesus said to Saul, arise, go into the city, which would have been Damascus, and, and you will be told what you must do. And he rose from the ground, and when he opened up his eyes in verses 8 and 9, no one was there, but they... They, they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight. And he was just fasting. That's one picture of what was going on with Saul after his conversion. He's in Damascus for three days. He cannot see and he's not eating anything. He's just or drinking anything. And so we, we talked about the Lord is when he when when he brings us into this relationship with him, he really wants it to be about him. And see, the last thing he saw is for three days embedded upon his mind and upon his heart. The last thing he heard was the word of his Savior. And so we talked about how, how we just went with the seas <laughs> from just that consecration being set apart for the Lord. But that really begins by communing with the Lord. And what a picture that is. Just the time he would spend with the Lord. The Lord was going to make this Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, an apostle of the apostles. A preacher of preachers. An evangelist of evangelists. He's going to make this persecutor into a preacher of preachers. That brings us to verse 10 where it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus. So now we're brought into the city of Damascus. And we have a look at, at an individual, one of the people that made up one of the church bodies in Damascus. A man by the name of Ananias. And to him, to Ananias, the Lord said in a vision... Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Another little insight into Saul following his conversion. Can't see, he's, he's fasting, 
Now we see he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. So as I'm appearing to you in a vision, I want you to know as I'm appearing to you in this vision and explaining some things to you in this vision, there's this guy Saul. He's been praying and I have been revealing something to him in a vision as well. And in that vision that I've given to Saul, he sees you coming and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias answers the Lord in verse 13 and says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And, and here he has authority from the chief priest. This got, this got to Ananias to bind up all the Christians here that call upon your name. I love this setting. As God is dealing with Saul, he's been converted now, and God is just, it's, it's, it's a reprogramming. How many of you guys remember those early days when you first came to Jesus, how just your heart and mind began to change? Anybody? Oh, oh, we've got about seven saved people here. That's great. They were genuinely saved. They can remember it. I mean, honestly, don't you guys remember just how you looked at yourself different, how you looked at the world different, how you looked at your friends different, how you looked at God different, how you looked... Don't you remember that? Yeah. That's, that's, that's what's going on with this murderer, with this guy who hated Jesus and was persecuting the church. God is continuing to just work on his heart, work on his mind. He's reprogramming the mission of his life. When God saves anyone, he does with his purpose in mind. And sometimes that doesn't just overcome us. Sometimes we don't just come to understand that right away. There's going to be a process here for Saul, as we'll see. But as, as God is working on Saul, converting him and beginning to reprogram him, God is also working on others around his life that God is going to use as a tool in bringing him along in the ultimate purpose of his life. This is Ananias. This is not the Ananias that we read about, by the way, in chapter 5, where he and his wife lied to the church leaders and the Lord struck them dead, okay? This guy's alive still. <laughs> it's another Ananias. In 22... Paul will actually be talking a bit about this season in his life, his conversion, and the role of Ananias. And he'll describe him as a devout man and that he was well spoken of as he lived there in Damascus by those that lived in Damascus. It is believed that Ananias was one of the spiritual leaders in the church that made up Damascus. And if that was so, when Saul would have arrived in Damascus if he was not converted and was not let in blind and now converted, if Saul would have rode his horse into Damascus with his entourage, he would have asked, where are the Christians? Who is in charge? And there's no doubt that Ananias would have known he would have been on the most, probably the top of the most wanted list of Saul, 
a man with credentials from the high priest himself. But now, in verse 11, the Lord appears to Ananias in a vision and instructs him, get up, arise and go to this street called Straight and inquire, ask in the house of Judas for this man that is there by the name of of, of Saul. Now, now this is a serious test of his faith. Saul's fearsome Reputation is widely known as he said to the Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how he's done so much harm to all the saints in Jerusalem. I've heard that he has authority from the chief priest to do the same thing here. There's no way that Ananias would have known of Saul's conversion at this particular time. Behold, Ananias... I just want you to know something about Saul. He's praying. Again, affirming to us that this is something Saul was doing, but affirming to Ananias. And what was going on in the fearful heart of Ananias when in this vision the Lord appears to him, the Lord begins to speak to him, and the Lord begins to reveal that he is actually doing something in the heart of this man Saul, because it's not just that he's praying, he lets him know, oh, and I'm speaking to him. And while God was dealing with Ananias in regards to Saul, we see that God is dealing with Saul in regards to Ananias. In the vision I gave Saul, he sees you. I, I, I've showed you coming to him. <laughs> think of just, I, I think this would have brought a little bit of peace to his heart. It would have put a little confidence to his stride in getting up and, and, and doing what the Lord was calling him to do. God was working on both ends. Last week I said, we're going to approach this passage in and, and I just, I said this, I go, I want us to think about how we as Christians interact with new converts. I want you to think about that. Now, if you are a non-believer here or online or a new believer here or online, you should also be going, yeah, how are, how, how does God, working through believers in the church, how, how do they interact with me? What, 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 how, does this all, how does this all work? What's their, what's their focal point? I remember growing up in the church, there were, there were, you know, as a younger man, there were Christians that I didn't understand. I just didn't understand them. As a young man, I'd watch their behavior and I'd be like, I just don't want to be like that. I can, I can remember very clearly the, the legalistic thing drove me nuts. Then there were some that were really sincere and really just, you know, they'd come and kind of rub me on the head when I was a little guy. And there was one guy that used to always stand at the back door. He was a boxer and he'd always tell me, hey, Lance, take a shot. He'd just go like this and tighten up his six pack and bam, 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 bam. He stopped doing that when I was in junior high, by the way. But that guy went over my heart. He was just real. And he would always pray over me. His name was 
bro, we call everybody brother, sister, brother Bima. And brother Bima, when I was probably about eight or nine years old, knelt down and he, he put his hands on me. And I remember him clearly saying, one day God's going to use you. You're going to be a pastor. You're like, I don't think so. But there were those along the way that just kind of, I watched how they had a heart for the lost. They brought their friends. There were just always people. It just was what they did. They were Andrew-like as we look at those around Jesus. And they were always bringing people and, and just had this desire to want to walk with people in the newness of their walk. I believe that's the heart of God. I really do. You know, their life never was so busy that they weren't available for the life, the new life, and bringing someone up in the new life in Christ. I remember in the 70s, the, the, the hippie movement thing was going on. I was a younger guy, but I remember watching it even impact our church. There were many churches that, that impacted. And I just remember seeing so much conversion. Just, I, I remember getting picked up often in sixth and seventh grade to go surfing with guys. And, and one guy might be saved in the car and everyone else has just started going to the church. And that's all we, I, I listened to all the way there was Jesus talk and mustard seed faith and all of these, you know, whatever you had on an eight track back then. And, and just getting on the beach with these guys and they would just pray and lift their hands to the Lord. I'm like, wow. And I remember Every service we ever went to when that revival began to break out, I remember just, it wasn't just new people coming in and, and, and like they couldn't wait for worship to start. It just, you know, places were just full long before the services start. But it was, it was all these new people that were being engaged by and, 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 and led by their friends that knew the Lord. That's just what it was. That's the heart of God. And so I think about what Ananias had to process, the fears that he had to work through for God to use him to the extent that God did. But God was working on both ends. Bringing two men together that were worlds apart at one time. When we share Christ with people, oftentimes we begin to talk to them and realize God has already been working on, on them, convicting them and speaking to them through others and through circumstances and preparing their heart. I see that a lot. When Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, the believers there, and he was writing in that first letter about when he and Timothy first showed up. He said in verse 5, he goes, you know, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. You know, as we saw, just like we saw in Saul's conversion, whenever there is a, a genuine conversion taking place, we know that God is at work. And that's what Saul was saying, or Paul was saying, excuse me, to the church in, in Thessalonica. God is not only working in the lives of, of those that are being converted, but he's working in the life of those who are sharing the gospel. He's working on both ends. 
That's why he's like, you know, our, our, our word when we came to you, it wasn't just when we brought the gospel, it, we didn't come to you in word only. Yeah, in Acts 17, when he went there, he, he told them about Jesus, who he was, that he died on a cross, that he rose from the dead and whatnot. But, but those words were accompanied by the Holy Spirit in power and in the Holy Spirit. And I've always said, you could have the most articulate, you know, riveting, insightful communicator break down the gospel, but if it's not accompanied by God, by the Spirit, it's not going to accomplish anything. But when the Holy Spirit accompanies the gospel message being delivered, a living person, the third person of the Godhead, is at work. And he's at work through the Pauls proclaiming it, and he's at work in the hearts and the lives of those receiving it. He's working on both ends. It's awesome when the Holy Spirit puts someone on your heart and mind and you begin to pray for them. If, if you don't have that kind of regular thing going on with God, I'm just going to say this much. You're not talking to him enough. You're just not. Or you're talking to him about your world and your wants, and that's just kind of what the discussion is about. But the moment you begin to open up to the heart of God and say, Lord, speak to me, guide me. What's your will for me today? Pray this prayer. Lord, put someone on my heart today. Put someone on my path today. Get ready for your schedule to change. And quite often, I, I could think of several people that I began to pray for, and as I would pray for them, you do. You begin to gain God's heart for them. He even begins to put specific things to pray for them about. I can think of a couple of guys, one in particular that this was happening with. And I just every day was waking up thinking about this guy and praying for this guy, but he's out of the area. So, uh, you know, these things you're putting on my heart, God, I'm, I, you know, when, when I see him next time, he called that day. Hey, I'm in your area. Really? What are you doing here? I, I'm just here, but you know, I, I've been thinking. It's been a long time since we've talked, and I just, I feel like you and I need to sit down and talk. Really? That's a trip when God's already put something on your heart for that person, and they're like chasing you down now to hear what God has put on your heart. They just don't know it's God. That's like going fishing, man, and they just start jumping in the boat. Initially, Ananias balked at going. I've heard about this dude. He, he's a dangerous guy. Word from the believers in Jerusalem. It's, 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 not, it's not wise. This is what Ananias said to the Lord in effect. Lord, do you really know what you're asking of me? This request seems to be extreme. It seems to be highly sacrificial, beyond my reach of sacrifice. It seems to be suicidal. My life, my marriage, my family, my ministry. Lord, what about all of that? This guy's here to take me out. And isn't that just what we do when the Lord begins to, to prompt us, to work through us? to the benefit of others. We just begin to go into the rationale with God and the 
the fear thing comes in and the logic thing comes in. The faith thing's kind of on the back burner, but just that, that human reasoning begins to... And that's what was going on with Ananias. There are those times when God will stretch our faith in what may seem at the time very extreme when it comes to reaching out to others. But he does this because he trusts us and he loves them and he wants them. He wants them. He wants a relationship. He trusts us and he wants to include us in his work. He wants to grow our faith. And oftentimes he grows our faith by testing our faith, by stretching our faith. And he also wants to affirm our faith by including us in his work. He wants to show us. It's me, Lance, working through your life. And one of the ways that he does that is not just giving me warm fuzzies that, well, I'm in the presence of God, but it's the evidence of him honoring the word that I would share with someone else and then seeing their lives transformed by the same God that transformed my life by them believing and receiving the same truth. When, when Paul wrote that first letter to the church in Thessalonica, that passage in verse 5 of chapter 1, where he says the gospel did not come to you only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And he goes, and in much assurance. And what he was talking about there was, was how the Lord assured him or affirmed his faith by seeing God do what God does when he shares the gospel. Paul's faith would have been assured or affirmed by the awareness of God's presence and God's power as he spoke. And, and his faith would have also been assured or affirmed as he saw these Thessalonians saved and their lives radically changed. And I don't know how much of that is happening around you personally to where it, it affirms your faith. Now, it can happen here corporately. We are, we are definitely not seeing the same things that we saw in the 70s. Otherwise, you would be sitting around right now with a bunch of people that, that, that don't know the Lord. And they would be sitting with you because you just couldn't leave them alone. That's what was going on in the 70s. Almost all of my friends on my street, and, and some of them will be here later on today, that, that I grew up with, when we got into those high school years, almost every single one of those guys, when that thing happened, started to come to our camps, come to our church. Every guy that I know at one time, well, they were in my house quite a bit because you couldn't walk past my house without my mom going, get in here, we're going to pray. But there was just a real move of God that to us right now, even as we hear that, our palms start to sweat and our hearts begin to race because we're like, ah, I've avoided having like truth talks with family and friends and coworkers, and I've got this really safe bubble right now because I don't want to have, you know, the inconvenience and the sacrifice. I don't want to be Ananias. Like, that's for so Ananias kind of people. And we've convinced ourselves that somehow, you know, I can just live a day, a week, a season without being available for God to do like this with me. 
So much so that if we said, you know, by a show of hands, who has a friend here with them today that they've invited, we would probably go, ah, oh, don't do that. I'm not going to do that, by the way. But, but if, if, if that was happening with you and you brought a friend today because you've been witnessing to them, follow this through. And at the end of the service, I give this invitation, which I usually do, and they like stand up, raise their hand, pray the prayer, whatever it is, and they come back to you and go, now what do I do? And all of a sudden, the speech going home is different than the speech that they had with you coming here, and you see them begin to change. That is going to affirm your faith. That's going to build your faith. And God looks at you, and he looks at me, and he's like, yeah, I want to reach the lost because that's my heart for the world. I love them so much, I'll give my son for that. What are you willing to give, Lance? What part of that, that, that my work are you willing to, I don't know, sign on to, be available to? Is fear always going to hold you back? Is that I, I might be asked a question I can't answer always going to hold you back? Rejection going to hold you back? Is that what it's going to be? I know that I spent a good part of my adult life being that person I just described. But there was a time when, when, when full surrender became full surrender. I had no idea what God was doing. I, I didn't surrender to God so that I would be a pastor one day. I actually, that was the last thing on my mind. But I, I just remember this full surrender in my heart. I could tell you what beach I was on, what state I was in, what the waves were like that day, and I could tell you how long I sat on the beach, I could tell you the passage that I was reading, and I, could, I wish I could have saved a napkin that I wrote everything down on or the notes that God gave me that day. But in that moment, everything changed. I was already saved. I was already going to heaven. But I was kind of like a second-class Christian. I, I, I was more of the, Lord, you can do this with me, but all of this is kind of off-limits. Ananias was just that. I'm already busy here and doing what I do with my family. I'm a devout guy. I'm well spoken of. Now, come on, God. You know, if I were to die today, the eulogies would be really cool. They would probably include even you. But God says, I got more for you. And it's way out of your comfort zone. And so the, the, the reasoning and the fear and all of that, I believe, because as much as we see a converting in Saul's heart, there's a work of God in the heart of Ananias. And what was it that took him from like, are you sure, God? I don't think so, God, to getting up and actually going and hanging out with Saul. You know what I think it was? In that vision, I don't want to overplay this, but in that vision... The word of the Lord resonated within his heart. How do you know that, Lance? Because he did exactly what the Lord said to do. And none of us will ever get beyond ourselves unless God's word is more powerful and more impacting, unless his voice and his word is more powerful and more impacting than mine than yours. Maybe even the world. So the Lord said to him, go, 
For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the, you know, Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I don't know who shared the gospel with you. I don't know who, who, who was bold enough. But aren't you glad that God worked through their fears? Aren't you glad that God worked through their skepticism about you? about their concerns about you possibly rejecting them because maybe you have already or they thought you would? Aren't you glad that God worked through the fears and the insecurity and, and whatever to, to bring the person, the Ananias that came to you with the gospel? Aren't you glad God worked through that? I am. Go. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. In other words, um, go and don't fear because I am in it. And Ananias needed to sort that out and land there. The call of God. The call of God on Ananias, the call of God on Saul here, that will be Paul. That the call of God is not based on the whims of men. But it's, it's the sovereign God at work. It's the grace of God at work. There's the grace of God on display here. What did Saul do to deserve God going to this extent to save him and now commission him? God chose Saul to be a vessel in which he would use. That's, that's mercy. That's grace. That's just wow. 1 Timothy 1, 12-14, Paul would say about his conversion, I thank Christ Jesus, the Lord, who has enabled me because he, he counted me faithful. And then he would talk about his calling, putting me into the ministry, although I was, and he lists the blasphemer and the persecutor and insolent man, I obtained mercy. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. We are, God is at work in the life of Saul right now as he's reaching into the heart of Ananias. Ananias understood that truth clearly and so did Saul. In Galatians 1, uh, Paul again would write, I'm an apostle not from men, no through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. To the church in Colossae, Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me from you. Paul always understood this, this murderer that's just been converted and is blind and is fasting and praying. This guy knew that the source of, of his ministry, what he had become, looking back over all of that, was God himself. Making Saul of Tarsus, the religious Pharisee of the Pharisees, a murderer of the church, Pastor Paul, 
was God's idea. It was God's doing. Becoming a minister of Jesus Christ was not what Saul of Tarsus planned to do with his life. Before God interrupted him on the road to Damascus, he was headed up even higher into the ranks of Judaism. He didn't volunteer to become a minister of Jesus Christ. He was appointed one by the Lord himself, blinded, terrified by Christ, his glory. All he could say is, Lord, what do you want me to do? 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, Paul says he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles. Question. As a Christian, if you walk with the Lord for any period of time, what part of your life right now, looking beyond yourself, your faith, your walk, your impact on others, could you say that about? Oh, see this? That's God. I didn't choose that. Whatever that might be, your influence in your marriage, your influence on your family, your influence on the people you work with, whatever gifting God has used or, or, or given you and is using through you by the power of his Holy Spirit, what, what part of your life could you look at like, like, like Paul did and say, oh, oh that was God. That, that's God's doing. He appointed me. I didn't choose that. And you could point to even a specific person or people that you know God like placed you in their life to minister to them. We all should have that going on. Paul was never a self-appointed guy. He was a Jesus-appointed guy. He knew his mission and his ministry were of divine origin. And, and that's true for every believer here today. As God is sovereign in calling us to salvation, he's sovereign in calling us to his service. He invites us to partner with him. We respond. We must be able to say like Paul said to Agrippa. We'll get there in chapter 26 it is when he's giving his testimony to the king. King, I, I, I was not disobedient to the heavenly calling of God upon my life. And I knew as a young man personally that God had a calling on my life. I had I came at a church that people were pretty busy prophesying and whatnot, and I had a few people doing that, but I just knew in my heart God wanted to use me with my friends. I knew that. I just knew it. I just, every, every group I stepped into that I shouldn't have been part of, there was this crazy conviction that just came over me, do not partake, make sure they know the Lord. It was just this, this horrible conviction thing. Why do you say horrible in the sense that it's wonderful when you concede to that, that conviction, and it's horrible when you do not. It's just like the hound of heaven is just on you. I was not obedient to the heavenly calling. That came later in life for me. Prayerfully, we are like Ananias to where God has set someone before us and said, go. Just go, Lance. 
Prayerfully, we've stepped out in faith. We've lived out our faith and we've shared our faith. And God is now using us as a tool in his hand to impact the life of another. Prayerfully, we are Paul. We are like Paul enough to where we can look at the spiritual role that we have in our marriage, again, our family, our workplace, or wherever, and have come to that humble reality that our role is a stewardship from God. You know, prayerfully, we can say today that I was not disobedient to the heavenly calling. I have become what God has appointed me to be. By the grace of God, I, I am what I am. And there's a, a, a specific aspect of this we just don't want to miss. God is a God of detail. Saul's calling was to take him to the Gentiles. That was part of it, to the Jews, and then before even kings. But, but to go to Gentiles and, and bear the name of Jesus. He's a chosen vessel of mine. I've chose him to do this. And th there's, there's no saved person here that God does not desire that same. I have a plan for you and I want to work this out to the benefit of them going on to some extent. I remember after uh, my wake-up call in Hawaii and, and just realizing I, I was, I, I had been living as a Christian out of the will of God. And I, I remember, I didn't know what to do. I just remember coming back to my surf shop in La Mirada and getting a few guys sitting around and just saying, things are going to change. That's where I started. I just remember sitting down with the people at, that I, I held really to no strict kind of accountability. It was like, just live your life and you know, just make sure you, you know, whatever. It, it, was, it was so minimal. I'm a Christian and you should be a Christian kind of approach. But I just remember going, it, it, it's going to change. And I knew God had spoke to my heart. And it began in me. I can't expect other people to experience full surrender or to pursue full surrender if I'm not. And, and I knew that. What I didn't understand and what I completely underestimated was the impact of that. That, 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 that people do watch us to the extent where they're like, that guy who's like started, they didn't know it, but was starting a devotional life now and starting to read his Bible and reading other like devotional books. And he's putting yellow post-its up all in his shaping stall. And he's listening to Bible studies all the time. He wasn't that guy, but he's that guy now. He's beginning to change. And I just didn't understand how my, my focus as I talked to people had changed. I didn't understand that as I would share what I just read, hey, check out the scripture. And I'd take the yellow post-it and stick it on their chest. And I signed their surfboards, you know, and it was all about me, you know, write my name real big. No, now I'm writing scriptures on their surfboards. I didn't understand how that would change everybody. I didn't understand how the Holy Spirit is working on, on both ends of all of this. And so when I said we're going to have a Bible study, you guys on Tuesday nights, and I brought pizzas, and all the kids came, I thought they were there for the pizzas. And maybe they were at first. But then they began to change. And I, and I remember driving out from the surf shop on certain nights, and even from my house, and saying, yeah, we're going to go out to this church. 
we're going to go out this, this, this concert or this Bible study. And I remember sitting down bummed out because we didn't have enough cars to take everybody. Now, who does that? God does that. I had no idea. Like, you just step out in faith. God's the one that does the work. You just step out in faith. God's the one that does the work. How many times do you want me to say that over and over and over to where you start seeing back over your life, God does it to the extent where he's now beginning to work through them the way he's working through you? It's not a pyramid thing, by the way. It's a kingdom thing. It's not a business plan. It's God. And then you look over your shoulder and you, you, you go, wow, look at what he did. And all along, your faith that was faltering, it just was, because you weren't surrendered and you were living in compromise and complacency, like a lot of Christians do, all of a sudden, it's active faith. It's obedient faith. It's now being affirmed by what God is doing around you. And so you walk into a room like this, and people are hugging you. And you never forget where that hug began. You understand when you're in a, a, a position like I am, I still shouldn't be the guy going up there. I was joking to some people today. They go, hey, who's speaking today? Because I didn't speak last week. And I go, I don't know, I'm walking around with my mic that I'm going on trying to hand it to someone else, seeing if it's their turn. We all start laughing. But there's, there's that sense of, God, are you, are, you, are you sure? There's that that comes with it as well. Just the overwhelming affirming of your faith in what God is doing. Yeah, were these last two years challenging for my faith? Probably the most two challenging years of my life. You say, what challenged your faith? Having COVID? No, that built my faith. What challenged my faith is the same things that build my faith. There were so many distractions. I wasn't in the word sometimes as I should have been. Anybody go through that the last two years? Oh, we've got some honest people here today, too. That's good. There were, there were moments of uncertainty and fear. There really were. I was all of a sudden distracted with, what? We have no children coming to our church anymore? Oh, we don't have people coming to our church anymore? These are big distractions. Oh, stand up a production as a stage? I'm not a production guy. These are distractions. And so the same things that build our faith can also have an adverse effect on our faith. What, what would build my faith, oftentimes, time with the Lord, time in His Word, quality time with the Lord, quality time with His Word, and, and that was being interrupted. What also builds my faith is to see Christians grow in their faith. And if that builds my faith, what happens as a human being when I see Christians caving into fear everywhere I look? It can rock your faith. It'll challenge your faith. What happens when you walk in the community, you that lead here, you that were invested here, and you know people, and you run into everybody and you haven't seen them for a year and a half? It, 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 will, it, will, it will do something to your faith. It can. And so there were lots of times where I just came to the Lord and, Lord, this is your church. 
I'm a steward of what you have given me. And, and, and him and I worked all of that out to where my faith began to grow and mature and not be shattered or, or shipwrecked. But that the Lord would just, like, this is the reality of the church right now, Lance. Fear has taken a hold of them. You just don't cave into fear. You stand up, be in the front lines, and just go for it. Don't you stop being who I've called you to be because others are being rocked by their faith. And so you pour that into the leaders. You pour that into, and that's what we did. And here we are almost two years later. And what do we see on display? Yes, the faithfulness of God. But this is, this is just raw ministry 101. If you want to see God work in the lives of others, you need to pursue him passionately, intently, genuinely to where you see him working in your life. Where you're not just repeating something you read in a devotional that morning or a passage that you read. No, he's imparting his life to you. When you speak, you're speaking life. And that will change the people around you. And by the way, that's what the church needs today. You know what the church needs today? It's not sheepish sheep. Sheep is sheep. I don't even want to play that too far, but you know what I'm saying. So I don't know, you know. We need kebabs. All in, totally sacrificed, fried for the Lord. Sheep. Think about that one for a while. I don't know. Make a new shirt. On the front, it's a sheep. On the back, it's a kebab. Let them figure it out. All in. You see, you would look at me and even apply. Yeah, we need that in you, Lance. But there's a lot of people around you that will never see me. And God, you know, spoke to you about them. And he needs you to be that to them. Why? Because he loves them. And he wants a relationship with them. And God trusts you. And he wants to include you in his work. He trusts you enough to be a steward with the most precious thing on the planet, his son and his word. And then he, he wants to challenge your faith and stretch your faith. So that your faith is affirmed. So that you could look back on some people in your life like Paul would look back on the Thessalonians in his life. And go, man, when I came to you, I didn't just bring you some words, the word of God. Oh, man, Holy Spirit was all over it. It was in power and demonstration. And just look at what God did. There's guys that are up here sometimes that still from the surf shop. They just got saved through the surf shop. And I'll walk out here and I'll just go, in the world. I'm like, yeah, I can't believe you're saved. And they're like, I can't believe you're saved. What are you doing walking out there teaching? And we just have this blast. But God wants you to be a tool in his hand. To impact, a tool that would impact the life of another 
for him, for his glory. And he sees, he sees every part of you. You might be so Ananias right now where you've already, through this whole Bible study, you've been listing, you've got your list. Moses had his list. That was a good one. I stutter. You, you know, you just might, whatever limitations and insecurities and fears, we all have those lists. But then we look at the life of Moses and we're all like, look at how God uses a stutterer. Yeah, but you have no idea, like, what, I have turned my back on the Lord over and over and over. I have just been this roller coaster of a Christian. I, I just don't know what it's like to fully surrender. I've just got so much strong opinion. Okay, then we look at the life of Peter. Now we're going to get into that guy next week. And like, how the Lord used him. And as we get into his epistles, we're like, what a soft, powerful, influencing shepherd Peter became. You see, the Lord looks at us, and he looks right past all of what would hold us back from full surrender, and he sees what he can do. He sees the finished work right now. And it's not that he, he does not recognize our weaknesses and our failures. He just works through that. He works through that. I'm the guy that is an example. Well, let's all stand. That, that makes me close. I see you guys. Oh, it's time. I was supposed to get to verse 31. We did not get there, so stay tuned next week. Is it 31? Yes, I think it is. But I, I really was, for you newer people, I was the guy that all through school, if you, call, if you were my teacher and you called on me, I turned bright red. And I turned bright red because you're asking questions about something you just taught, and I couldn't remember. I just couldn't remember. I was talking to my mom one time. I go, was I ever in that, that, like, that one bus that came over here, that special bus? Did you ever put me on that thing, you know? No, I didn't do that. But I just remember being junior high, high school, mortified if you called on me. And so the Lord decides, I'm going to use that guy who can't remember anything. He's dyslexic. He has to read things 50 times before he gets, I'm going to use that guy. I'm going to put him in this lane where he's going to have to study the rest of his life and understand the word of God. I'm going to put him in a lane where he's going to have to depend on me or it just isn't going to work. It's just going to be a not by might, not by power, by that dorkiness of Lance, but by my spirit. That's just the way he works. And this might be a convicting part of the book of Acts. I hope it is. I'm convicted as I talk about it. I'm a surrendering man. Needing to surrender more each day. I'm a man that fights with distractions like you do. I'm a man that gives in to distractions like you do. I'm a man that looks at this world and says, I, I, I kind of think it's my home today. I like this. I'm a man that needs to remember this is not my home. I'm a man that needs to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm a man that needs to read this Bible as a mirror before I ever stand up before you. Go, Lord, please help me. This is for me first. So I'm just one of us. In that sense, 
talking about what we all experience, the journey of faith that we all experience. But I'm a man that can also say after 30 years, I am a steward of a ministry that God entrusted to me. Did I deserve it? No. Did I earn it? No. There's something special about me. Did I like really get like God really got to find in me? No. And that's not true of any of us. But God loves us. God trusts us. And God would look at the empty chairs in a room like this very different than we would. I'm not a numbers guy. I'm not a like, get more people here. We need more. It's not about that. God would just look at the empty chairs and go, ah, I gave you a good-sized room. I'll let you answer that question. What do you think God would do with this room through you? I don't know. You think you might show up for worship on, on, on time. That, that was so pre-COVID. Our guest speakers trip out when they come here. They sense the Spirit of God. A lot of them are coming from different churches and different backgrounds, different places that maybe they don't see it to the extent that we are, and they trip out on this first service. They say, do those people understand what God is doing? Like those people that kind of, the worship times like when, I, go, I think they do. I hope they do. But I, I hope we can get back to a place, really, where the, the full surrender in this room is a byproduct of your full surrender. You follow me? And my full surrender and their full surrender. And, and all of a sudden, we're looking around and we're seeing like our friends getting saved and our relatives getting saved because we're just not caving in excuses anymore. Ananias, we didn't get very far, but Ananias did go to Saul's house. <laughs> or Judas, he, he, he wouldn't lay hands on him. Father, thank you for what you've put in our heart today. For any here, Lord, or online that don't know you, it would be a, a disservice to you to not give them a chance. To know you, if that's you, and you, you've really sensed God, touch your heart, and you would like to give your life to him right now. Just tell him that. Say, Father, I, I, I've sensed you touching me this morning. Your word has penetrated my heart. And so I give my life to you right now. Just confess to Jesus. You believe in him and that, like Saul, he recognized him for who he was. That you believe that he is God. That he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead for you. Just tell him that. And ask him to come into your life and to fill you with his, his spirit. And Lord, for our church, what a, what a fascinating season we find ourselves in. What a wonderful opportunity set before us. May you use us to the extent that we read about and contemplated this morning as you worked through the life of Ananias and used him. May you do the same with us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, God bless you guys. We love you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Stay healthy.